You're listening to the Fifth Estate podcast from the Wheeler Centre. Hosted by writer, broadcaster and anthropologist Sally Warhaft, this week's guest is Philip Ruddock. Philip uh, has just retired from a political career spanning more than 40 years. He was the second longest serving member of parliament in our history. Only Billy Hughes bested him uh, at 51 years. Uh, He served in the governments uh, of Malcolm Fraser, John Howard, Tony Abbott and Malcolm Turnbull. He was the father of the House and the last MP from the Whitlam and Fraser years. Philip served as a Cabinet Minister in numerous portfolios including immigration and multicultural affairs, Indigenous affairs and of course as Attorney General. He was, until his retirement, Chair of the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Human Rights and Co-Chair of Australian Parliamentarians Against the Death Penalty. And he's now Australia's Special Envoy for Human Rights um, and also holds a practising certificate as a solicitor. Never knew when I might have to go back. Well, there you go. You see, you can't be too careful. Please welcome Philip Ruddick. Philip, you agonised over your decision to retire from uh, Parliament. How does it feel after 42 years to be in Melbourne and not Canberra just a couple of days after an election has been called? Well, I'll be very frank. I mean, I've had mixed feelings about it. Um, When you've been involved in public life almost from your youth, and I was... Um, I was brought up in a political family. My father was involved in politics. He had a very uh, extensive career of his own. And uh, I was, of course, very much uh, influenced by him. Uh, I used to sit in the yard while he would pontificate on a Sunday morning with friends about local issues that were impacting upon our community. And uh, I was elected at 30. Um, As I said, I I retained the practising certificate. I never thought I'd be there for the length of time that I was. Uh, But when you've been there as long as I have been, uh, to elect not to be voted out but to retire, um, I guess I asked myself um, when Julie Bishop said to me, would I consider being envoy for human rights? Um, Am I able to have a more significant influence on the issues that are important to me now in the parliament. And I was, as you said, chairing the Human Rights Committee, looking at our own performance. Um, I was also very much involved, having uh, a long-standing view about capital punishment. Um, I was involved in the group of parliamentarians opposed to the death penalty. I asked myself, would I be able to have a bigger impact on those issues, dealing with them in the current parliament, in the way in which we are, or might I have an even more significant impact if I am able to help Australia achieve a role where we can be advocating in relation to some of these issues that are so important to me? When you say in the current parliament as we are, um, are you referring to a a culture of politics now um, that was very different to 
the times that you'd seen it in the past? No. Um, I was just simply saying that when you're there and you're saying, am I likely to come back as a minister? Um, I listen to my leader and he says, I'm looking for generational change. I respect that there are people with skills that they can use in their more mature years. He's not against that, um, but he wasn't going to bring me back as a minister. And I had to be quite realistic about it. I would be back chairing a parliamentary committee. If I look at the committees I'd chaired in recent times, um, such as the Human Rights Committee, um, the Joint Standing Committee on Foreign Affairs, Defence and Trade had a subcommittee on human rights. Um, we'd done a major report on how Australia might be able to play a part in relation to the death penalty. I'd completed it. I'd been on a major inquiry in relation to banking. I am concerned about some of the practices that banks have engaged in in recent times. And there is a very useful report. You didn't need a Royal Commission to tell you that things had happened that were flawed. And we proposed some suggestions as to how you might move forward on those matters. Um, and I thought it was a very positive approach. But the work had been done. I would be looking for new targets. And for me, um, I weighed it up. If Australia can help influence the United States, for instance, to change its approach to capital punishment, and it is changing, it's just that they haven't gone the whole way, um, it will have more influence around the world than any other decision that could be taken. I don't know that it'll influence Iran, Saudi Arabia, China in the same way. They're the big executors. But there are many countries that are on the cusp. And if we can get that sort of change, um, it will be for so much the better. We'll come back to that specific uh, issue in, in, in a little later in our, in our conversation. Was, was there a time in the 42 years where you felt Australian politics was at its very best? And not just because of whatever position you had, but where the culture of politics was higher functioning in, in a way uh, that it was just clear to everyone. Oh, look, I think um, people often talk about the way in which politics is conducted and the quality of debates and, uh, and suggest that it was far better at earlier points in time. And is time. it true? No. Um, you know, I, mean, I, I do remember um, a member of parliament uh, throwing a glass of water across the table at another. Uh, I wasn't there when it happened. Uh, I do remember a Victorian member of parliament climbing over the benches ready to thump somebody on the row behind. And, and that happened something like 35 years ago. Um, so, you know, the idea that uh, politics wasn't animated and uh, people weren't passionate about issues, um, you know, it's, I mean, if you ask me truthfully, I think the parliament is the poorer um, because it has less uh, of those qualities. The debates that we have are rather devoid of passion. Mm. Um, people are now served by staff members who write their speeches and they come into a chamber where you need a microphone uh, in order to be heard and you don't get the sorts of debates you used to hear between Jim Killen and Freddie Daly mm. um, where they sparked across the chamber. Um, it is very rare that you get a debate where um, you... I mean, yes, there are 
interjections that are just rude and boisterous, but the quality of debate where somebody picks up the argument and somebody else says, well, that's an interesting point and there is an answer, um, you don't hear it. You made a really interesting remark in your valedictory speech um, about also the quality of advisers now, particularly if uh, you're doing a lot of parliamentary committee work. And, and you, you gave the example in your speech of um, that uh, back in, I think, 1973, perhaps, uh, you were working on family law. A bit later. It was a little bit later. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that it, they were judges that advised yeah. you at that time. Um, well, they weren't. They became well, they judges. Became judges. They became that judges. That the quality of that advice was far superior to it. Well, let me just make the point. Um, what we've seen is that uh, there are expectations that you will develop in the new parliament um, uh, a lot more uh, different programs to what we used to have, um, particularly educational programs. Um, and, uh, and so what you've found is that uh, the budget isn't being increased, um, but the expectations are higher. Um, and you also have uh, a propensity to form many parliamentary committees on almost um, every issue imaginable. Um, and the Senate will go down that route. Um, you'll almost have a, uh, an inquiry in relation to every con- controversial issue that uh, uh, may be... Um, brought forward. When I first went in the Parliament, there were probably half as many committees, and each of them were staffed by professional staff, as you would expect, and they had specialist advisers. Um, And the Aboriginal Affairs Committee was one of the examples I used. We had one of the greatest anthropologists that Australia has ever seen giving us advice. We had my dear friend Jan Reid, who's recently retired as the Vice-Chancellor of Western Sydney University as a specialist advisor. Um, When I came to chair the Joint Select Committee reviewing the Family Law Act after the 1974 um, uh, Family Law Act, um, initiated by Murphy, um, when we had no-fault divorce, um, there was an inquiry set up into whether or not that change was uh, valuable, and I was invited to chair it. And and we did have um, Richard G, who became a judge of the family court. Uh, We had Mary Finn, who became a judge of appeal in the family court as specialist advisers. Mm. Um, You don't get that on the committees today. Um, The disappointing aspect to me in relation to the committee reports that you often read is um, instead of being the most original research possible, um, prepared from the point of view of better informing the Australian community, you now have reports that are written on this basis. Um, We advertised, uh, we received this evidence, and we received this other evidence and we evaluate the view of the contributors, um, and this is what we think. Um, It's not the robust reporting that we used to see in parliamentary committee reports. And that has to affect policy. Um, I think it's much the poorer. Um, And it was one of the comments I made in my valedictory speech directed at the uh, clerks of the parliament, um, and I guess at my own leadership, because um, when I was whipped, uh, under Tony Abbott, I said, look, maybe this would be a good time to rationalise the, uh, the committee systems, that is, fewer committees, better resourced, 
Um, and I think Tony found it a bit hard to relieve uh, many from the possibilities of uh, chairing a committee uh, that uh, is, is, is there if you have as many committees as we have. Mm -hmm. um, one final question before we move on to your new role about the um, election result, um, but also connected to you know, what's going on in the United States, the, the rise of Donald Trump, um, the Brexit result... Uh, in the UK, a sense at the moment that in wealthy Western democracies there's a pushback, there's a, a, a disenfranchised um, pushback of, of political elites or the political establishment. Do you think there's anything in that? Do you think that we got a little taste of that with um, low primary votes, um, so many uh, people casting their vote for for outside the major parties. Do you think there's something going on that's broader than Australia? Well, I think there is something going on here. Um, and uh, um, it's uh, a reflection um, of uh, the way in which the world has changed. Um, and you won't expect the answer I'm going to give you, but if you think about politics 40 years ago, the divisions between um, the socialists who were seen to be driven by communists, um, and you had the DLP, um, which was a breakaway from the labour movement because of those extremes, um, it reflected something of the divisions of the time. Um, and um, the Labour Party won't admit it, but it has changed. It is no longer the socialist party uh, with a substantial communist element Oh, I think they admit that, Philip. Do you think they're still oh, there? Oh, th Do you think they're still there? Um, look, I mean, they may be, but look. No, no, I, I, I think don't... they admit that it's changed. Um, well, I think it has, mm. but they haven't yet... Well, maybe they have taken the socialist relevant provisions out of their constitution, have they? No, I think they're uh, still... They're still there, are they? Yeah. I but look, I mean, there. Australia has changed, and I think people feel they've got more opportunity to make a judgment on the wider range of issues rather than a strong philosophical commitment to one or the other. I think that is a change that has occurred. Um, I think the quality of debate, I mean, I am, if you ask me about the recent campaign, let me say I think Malcolm Turnbull wanted to move in a different direction. He was more measured, was prepared to argue his case, and I think the Labor Party demonstrated um, that they were still attached to the model of uh, being devastatingly critical and negative. And they were. And the regrettable aspect is that it has convinced some people that negativity um, is the way in which you gain ground rather than a positive message. And I hope that in public life we can see more positive messages argued um, rather than um, negative campaigning. Um, I think... Uh, I mean, you've only just retired, haven't you? You still, you still could get in there and... Uh, I'm not sure about that. I thought a, it was uh, a measured comment. A, uh, well, it's, no, yeah. it's, 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 it's of great interest, uh, the, the comment. Um, uh, 
You are Australia's uh, first special envoy, envoy uh, for human rights. Um, and this is obviously uh, very strongly connected to the Australian bid uh, for a, a, a seat uh, on the uh, United Nations Human Rights Council for uh, 2018 to 2020. Uh, tell us why this is important. Tell us about your role. Well, I think Australia is of the view um, that uh, it is time that we were able to play a more constructive part in the leadership of the United Nations Human Rights Council. And uh, we are seeking a place uh, as one of the Western European and other members. We're up against um, France and Spain, I think, France aren't we? and Spain are the other contenders for the position in that year, each of them having previously been on the council. Um, and we think that uh, the... Uh, Asia-Pacific, uh, where we're part of the others, um, ought to be able to play a part. Um, and we do have a view um, that there are issues that we would want to progress. Um, and uh, if you look at some of the publications that um, we've produced, they all set it out. We support human rights institutions. We've got an issue. We, we want to pursue issues in relation to helping First Nations peoples. Um, we are particularly strong in relation to democratic values, freedom of speech, um, and, and the rule of law. Um, and we are very focused on issues relating to women and children. Um, and. We say um, that uh, if we're there, we will be able to play a more significant part. So it is certainly the case um, that we are arguing that we um, should be able to play a role. Um, but we want to be elected, and so you're going to put those views in a way which you hope uh, will generate support. Um, but I do go with it uh, with some passionate interests. I mean, um, we haven't listed as one of our five, but we've said we've sponsored the recent conference in Oslo um, on the death penalty. Um, and I certainly hope that uh, on an issue like that, um, we can play an important role. Um, there are a lot, of, a lot of killer countries on that uh, UN Human Rights Council at the are, moment, aren't there? But, but, but France and Spain, whom yep. we are against, um, would have the same views as well. Yes, we yes. I mean, it is one of the... Um, strange things. There's 47 members of the council uh, who can serve a maximum, I think, of six years total. At the moment, Saudi Arabia, Congo, Russia, China, Vietnam, and the Philippines are on it. Mm. Uh, the Philippines very recently elected, um, I mean, a nutcase, a yep. guy who's, uh, he has said, I'm going to execute 100,000 people, I'm not even going to take them to court, I'm going to just kill them on the street in my first six months uh, after being an abol abolitionist country mm. since 2006. Um, heartbreaking reversal um, there. So tell us a bit, obviously Australia's not on it yet, uh, but how does it work when you've got countries like that? Um, each, I mean, every country has checkered has favourable and unfavourable, presumably, more or less degrees. Uh, but if you take Australia, uh, where we have our own real problems with human rights and then there are other aspects of our human rights that we're, we're very, very good at, how do you, how do you sell that uh, to countries that uh, are looking on us uh, 
uh, critically in making their... Well, I think you've, mis- you've, you've mixed two propositions, so let me deal with each of them, if I may. Of course. Um, the, the membership of the uh, council reflects something of the world in which we live. Um, and yes, there are people there who have views that uh, I find um, quite unacceptable. Um, but it's the only body we've got. Um, and, uh, you know, you could have a, a small cast that would go out and um, round up on the others. What you've really got to look at is, can we, over time, produce change? Um, when I went to the Human Rights Council, I listened to some of the debates. Um, and uh, um, I found it disappointing listening to some people from Eastern Europe explaining uh, their position on human rights that I think are fundamental but they say can be usefully delayed because the most important human right is social development. And until you are able to get people to an appropriate standard of living, you don't worry about what we call civil and political rights. Now, you may not hear that view very often, but it was put, um, and uh, it troubled me. Um, I think you can do both, Um, but, uh, but they say we have a priority. We want to move... Um, in areas of social development, that's what they're saying. And then you get, um, it was the Maldives actually, the foreign minister up there, um, and they've had some uh, fairly um, difficult issues in relation to their political leadership. Um, And, um, um, you know, the explanation was, well, we're doing this in accordance with our respect for human rights. This is the rule of law, and it's the rule of law in the Maldives that enables us to pursue these people in this way. Um, That is the justification. Um, Look, I mean, I understand where you're going in relation to uh, our record. Um, And yes, there are issues about which we have vigorous debate here in Australia. Very important freedom is freedom of speech. Um, And yes, there are expectations in relation to some issues um, that um, we might perform Uh, uh, in some people's view, better than they think we are. And I understand that. Um, I mean, um, the greeting here tonight, for me, uh, I was surprised that I was still so relevant after 10 years. (laughs) But, um, you know, I have always had a strong and passionate view about refugees. I have been involved in trying to resolve those sorts of situations around the world. Um, and we're not going to do it by essentially Australia taking every refugee. There are 65 million people displaced now. Um, I think we have to be focused on helping those who need help most. But I certainly would never accept a view that people should be treated inhumanely. Um, and so we do have questions about um, whether we do it well or not. Um, and uh, sometimes I think some of the arguments are pressed because there are those who think if they can put us under duress, they may get a better outcome. Um, and sometimes people do behave in ways which they shouldn't, and if they do, uh, we should deal with it. When you look back, though, on your time in you know, controversial uh, periods of your um, minis- ministries, uh, do you... Do you look back now and think... I mean, there are lots of people who, uh, when they heard about your appointment to this role, just cannot comprehend how Philip Ruddick could be 
Australia's envoy to the world, to the United Nations. Um, and your, your history and your documented history on human rights issues, is, it's quite complicated uh, and, and really mixed. You, you cross the floor. Uh, to, to vote against John Howard's... Mm. Well, I don't uh, regard it as mixed at all. You see, the point I make is when I first got involved in public life, um, I was a member of Amnesty International. Um, I was one of its founder leaders in the national parliament. I passionately oppose capital punishment. I do believe that we should deal with people who are prisoners of conscience um, and I do believe that people should not be tortured um, and, and that is a passionate view. Then I do have a view that we are a unique country who has settled people from all over the world of different, case, different cultures, different races, different religions. We are a role model to the rest of the world in how we have been able to succeed in settling people. Um, and I am a passionate defender, and that's why I crossed the floor when there was even a hint that we might want to. Um, it was over um, choose John Howard well, wanting it was fewer a statement. agents. It was a statement that mm. we might need to take fewer people from Asia for a time, mm. and, uh, and and I said, well, I don't think you can have a discriminatory policy on the basis of race. I've got no problem about skills, family reunion, targeting refugees. I mean, that's selective. Um, but I think it's good that we have a generous program to help resettle refugees. But how but, do we get ourselves into a position then when chi where children are locked up? Well, um, let me just say that the important point for me has always been integrity. Um, I regard immigration as nation building. It's the building blocks for Australia's future. We have done it well. And when we do it well, it has strong public support. When we do it badly, that support ebbs away. And so integrity turns on whether or not people, when they apply, um, give you honest advice about their circumstances. We don't want to be deceived. Um, but it also turns on whether or not you allow people just to turn up um, or whether you, in fact, manage your borders. Um, and they're difficult issues. Um, I make the point that integrity is important, managing your borders is important. It is consistent with a strong commitment to helping refugees, those who need help most. It is consistent with keeping public support for migration as an important public program. Um, and from my point of view, um, you have to deal with those complex and difficult issues as humanely as possible. You said in your valedictory speech, again, you singled out children in detention uh, and that you hoped that something could be done about that but that it would be very challenging and very difficult. Why did you make that remark on the last day, or, or I mean, it, is it something that plays on, you know, within you that you weren't able to um, prevent that situation? Just that one example of of children in detention centres. I mean, let me just deal with the issue itself. I mean, some people elect to come, and they take a very dangerous journey, and some people say. That's because they're so threatened. Um, but they are the people who have money to pay and are free enough to travel. And they bring children with them. 
and they expect that if they have children with them, they will get a better outcome. The children are often used. Um, and uh, governments often will say, we are prepared to release a mother with children and put them in alternative detention models. Uh, we developed such a model based upon what they were doing in Norway and Sweden, something that I went and saw when I was Minister for Immigration. Um, but you need to keep the party that you might be concerned about who was seeking to come unlawfully, whom you may want to remove, um, and you need to have the family unit available. If you simply release the lot, um, you might never know where to find them. So um, what you would find, and very often, is that you are prepared to release the children, and sometimes the mother, um, and, the, and, the, and the father will say, well, if you're going to do that and not release me, they're not going. So what do you do? Do you say, oh, well, it's all too hard, we'll let you all go? Um, or do you say, um, well, I mean, that's the decision you've taken. Um, we think it may be better if they're in the local community, um, in a different environment. But, I mean, one of the important points that is often made by um, Malcolm and, um, and Peter Dutton is that um, essentially, um, in Australia today, there are no children in detention. No, but there are offshore. Um, yes, um, and, and, um, and in the context of Nauru, they are not in detention. And, um, and in the context of, um, of Manus Island, um, their government has now decided that it is not a closed detention facility. People can move in and out. How do you feel about the, the reaction that many people have um, in... in you're somebody who wears your human rights commitment on your lapel, literally. You know, you've worn mm -hmm. that badge mm -hmm. um, since you first put it on. Um, how, how do you... Do you feel that you're misunderstood or that people just don't understand how hard it was or... How, how does it make you feel um, knowing how, how strongly and passionately people also feel differently about this issue? I, I went in a vigorous debate about refugee issues and I said I am a Liberal for refugees. Um, and I have visited more refugee camps around the world than I think any Australian politician has ever done. In Europe, Trish Curtin, through Pakistan, um, in places like Pilabadong, in Malaysia, the Whitehead Detention Centres, um, I've been to Africa, I put in place the programs to bring people out of Kakuma in Kenya from Sudan. Um, I was the person who put in place the programs to help people who were displaced because of what was happening in West Africa. Um, I have had a strong and passionate interest in identifying those people who are never likely to be able to go home, who are in danger where they are, and working out how we are going to be able to help them. My interest is in helping those who need help most. Um, many only ever hear the stories of those people who have got to Australia and they say, listen to my story and understand what I've been through. But they don't hear the other stories and they're not making the same sorts of judgments. I don't think that you necessarily 
find those who need help most by identifying those who have money and are free enough to travel. That is the distinction. Um, and I come to this having been passionately interested in helping refugees long before these issues um, of unlawful entry to Australia ever arose. Um, I know uh, you've already brought up the, um, your commitment uh, against the death penalty and I, I'm the Vice President of Reprieve Australia and the President, Julian McMahon, may be here tonight. I'm not sure he was going to try and come. Um, so I feel like that is one bit of DNA you and I share because I know that Philip... <laughs> not <Rowley> any other. <laughs> oh, well, I don't know. I'm not sure. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. I'm sure we've got others. I'm sure we do. Uh, but that is one, and it's mm. a, it's a, um, it, and uh, there's something about people that are, uh, you, 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 you know, I know your commitment to that, to that cause is just absolutely uh, in your DNA. Um, tell us uh, a, a bit more about why and and where, why that? I mean, uh, uh, the 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 worst of the worst. Uh, I, the, I, I I thought about this. Um, in the context of what we were doing in Oslo. So um, the Oslo conference was a world conference on... Uh, on the death penalty. The yeah. death penalty. And, and, a couple and, of weeks and ago. You, and you ask yourself, um, I mean, how is it you have some people there who are so passionate about these matters and you've got other people who um, around the world are, who are perfectly happy uh, to see people executed? Um, I think for me it was... My early upbringing, um, my Christian upbringing. I was just about to say um, it was mine too, but mm -hmm. mine was early Jewish. Yeah, yeah. but <laughs> well, we, it, come, it starts with the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not kill. Now, some people have said that you might read it in particular ways. I've never had that interpretation put to me. Um, I've had difficulty even with the concepts of a just war um, because it, it does involve killing. Um, I see myself as a passionate advocate for the right to life. Um, I'm told it's not a term I should use because in some quarters it's only equated with, um, with abortion, and it's not. It's about the right to people to be able to live their life fully. Um, and uh, for me, um, I think it's important um, that we uh, are able to uh, identify those who commit criminal acts. Uh, we can try and reform them. Um, I think it's important um, that uh, we don't go around just depriving people of their life. Uh, I don't think it's an effective deterrent. Uh, when I went back to my uh, early years at law school, I can remember Gordon Hawkins who taught me at Sydney University, um, talking to us about deterrence um, and he made a point which was very simple that if you're going to stop somebody um, from committing a criminal act um, it's not the punishment that will deter them it is the prospect of being caught um, and um, I think that uh, uh, when you come to this issue from that perspective, um, you realise that the death penalty isn't a deterrent. 
Um, you know, you're harking back to um, uh, the dogma of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, um, and I don't think it has any place. Um, it'll never uh, really turn around completely, of course, while America is still uh, such an enthusiastic uh, practitioner. What do you think is the mood in America? And what, what do you think? How should we talk to Americans about this issue? Well, most of the uh, approach in America, I think, is being pursued by those who are undertaking research, and there has been some interesting research in the United States um, in relation to those states who have abolished the death penalty. Um, and it hasn't led to an increase in the number of murders. Um, in fact, in some places they say that when the death penalty is removed, less crime occurs. Um, I find that hard to imagine. I think it's more statistical. Um, but I think it's quite clear um, that it is not an effective deterrent. And I think that argument has to be uh, pursued and continue to be pursued. Um, I think that many Americans are embarrassed that they have it. Um, when I talk to people in other countries about these issues, and I have, uh, over a long period of time, I find that uh, um, when you raise it with Americans, um, you don't get too many who want to take the fight up to you. Um, I think when I raised it with the American ambassador here in Australia, we said, well, you have to understand it's my government's policy. Um, and he was really saying, um, I have to put our government's policy. But we, do no, we no longer execute minors, he said. Mm. Um, I um, raised the matter in discussions um, that Australia has with other governments, the Vietnamese, um, on several occasions, and on each occasion they reduced the number of offences for which a death penalty may be sought. Um, I think we have to recognise that it's important to raise it and to continue to raise it. Um, I think with China, which executes more people than any other country in the world, still thought to be in the order of 2,000, um, but it's down from the 5,000 mm. or so mm. that it used to be. Uh, they still don't tell us the numbers, but it is becoming clearer um, that they are focused on the fact that... Um, uh, that it, it does separate them from others and they have to look at it. And, and I just think we have to be persistent. Mm. Um, if you would like to ask a question, uh, put your hand up and uh, if an usher puts a microphone in it, then you can start to, start to talk. Um, and uh, while that's happening, I'll keep asking my questions. Um, Philip, you talked about um, Spain and France and, and we began talking about the, um, the difficulties of Australia getting a, seat, a, a space on the Human Rights Council, which seems astonishing for all our failings um, that uh, with some of the countries that are on it. Um, it but it, it, that doesn't have really a lot to do with it, does it, unless... Uh, I mean, how does it work? What is the politics of this? Because that's what it's all about, um, isn't it? I, I think the politics is better not seen. <laughs> um, look, okay. um, I mean, if you, if you look at the United Nations and the way in which it operates, um, um, you've got people looking at where, who's likely to be the next Secretary-General. Um, and... Um, and uh, there are some people who are of the view that it's now time for a woman. 
there are some people who are of the view that it should be, in fact, somebody from Eastern Europe. Um, but in the end... There are some people of the view mm, it should be Kevin Rudd. Yeah, well, um, or, or <laughs> Helen Clark. Yes. yes. Um, and the only point I want to make is that, um, you know, there is a lot of politics yeah. in the way in which those issues are going to be addressed. Um, and uh, um, I have to be alert to the politics... Um, and uh, I will be talking to a lot of people about um, our being a member where they pursue policies uh, which I am uncomfortable with. Um, and I hope um, that if we can make the first step and get there, um, we may be in a better position to influence some of these matters. Um, and it's better to try and do it than not do it at all. Uh, I applaud your commitment to eradicating the, the death penalty. I think that's a, a fine statement. I wish you well in your campaign. I find it very hard, though, to reconcile your conviction and commitment to that with the uh, policy of um, uh, condemning uh, those that have been sent to Manus Island and Nauru to a living death. Uh, I believe I would not be alone in viewing their situation as a living death. Would you explain how you can reconcile your two views on that, please? Um, I, I would just simply say uh, I don't accept uh, the, the point you have made. Um, I have seen people in refugee camps around the world. I have been to Manus Island and I have been to Nauru. Um, and uh, when I went there, um, they weren't open centres. Um, but if you went to refugee camps like Whitehead in uh, Hong Kong or Pilabadong in Vietnam or the camps that people were living at in, um, in, uh, in places like Thailand um, and the Philippines um, or you go to places like Pakistan, um, I mean, they are not very pretty places. If you went to the camp in Kakuma, if you went to the uh, camp which I went to in Zatri in Jordan, where so many people from, um, from, uh, from the uh, uh, Syria who have fled are now held. And, you know, I mean, it is a camp. Um, and the people are living there in pretty rudimentary circumstances. Um, but they are safe, um, but they are certainly not particularly comfortable. Um, and, um, look, there is a view that the only place where those who have sought to come to Australia want to be settled is Australia. That is their view. Um, I think we have a responsibility to see that people are not tortured and persecuted. Um, we have to provide protection. Um, and I don't think there is any evidence. Look, I have no doubt that Nauru, um, for people who come from uh, other parts of the world, um, you know, it's a small island, um, it's uh, fairly... Uh, uh, it's got nice sandy beaches, but uh, when you get to the interior, um, which is mined phosphate sites, it's not particularly nice. Um, but uh, people aren't being persecuted. And in fact, if you see the circumstances, and you may not like me saying this, the circumstances of the people in Nauru, where they are living, it is appreciably different 
to the circumstances that some of the people I saw on Melbourne streets today. I remember when um, I met you early 90s as community leader to, for the consultation regarding refugee and women's refugees issues and all that. And I do agree with you because I, do, um, I have asked a few refugees from Syria to arrange for them to go to Canada. They refused. They said, no, only Australia, because we heard that Australia is the best place for refugee. Now, regarding the human rights, I don't know how you're going to succeed. The Western representation, they very few, comparing to Saudi Arabia and um, the way they lobbying with other countries as well. And you mentioned everything about, like I mean, the death penalty in China, in Vietnam, but you didn't mention at all about Saudi Arabia. And comparing the population between China and Saudi Arabia, I think Saudi Arabia, they have the highest numbers of prosecuting people. And for no reason, apart from maybe just they didn't go to the prey or whatever. So I don't know how you're going to succeed. Well, let, 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 me, let, me, you. let, me just, let me just say it, it is China, um, it is Iran, it is Saudi Arabia, uh, it is Iraq, and it is Pakistan that are the major executors. Uh, even the United States, I think, last year was only around about 15 in comparison to the many hundreds that are executed in each of these countries. I am no defender of Saudi Arabia. But let me make this point, um, if I may, um, about the plight of refugees. The figure that I gave you is 65 million people displaced or refugees in the world today. It is the highest figure that it has ever been. And you have to ask yourself, um, is the issue going to be addressed by allowing a number of people who seek to access Australia uh, to do so in the circumstances in which they do? Um, or is there something else that we should be doing? And I went to the United States as a member of the uh, government's uh, um, Committee on National Security Issues with um, Dan Tian, who was then chairing it, and uh, uh, my uh, Senate colleague uh, um, from South Australia. Um, and we talked to people on the hill in Washington. What are we going to do to resolve this situation in Syria? Because at the moment you've got international players who are allowing this circumstance to arise. And it is Saudi Arabia and Turkey who are sponsoring many of those who are involved in seeking to overthrow a regime. It is Iran and Russia that are propping it up. Um, and the United States because of its earlier engagements, is saying we are no longer prepared to be involved in trying to deal with these issues uh, other than uh, by talking. Um, and I think there needs to be a willingness to knock heads together and say we are going to find a solution to this. Um, because if we don't provide a solution, 
you are talking about millions of more people who will simply be displaced. Um, and I think, um, you know, at times we focus on the small numbers of people um, who are able to move rather than the very, very much larger problem that is facing the world community. Yeah, hi. Um, it seems to me over the last 15 years or so, the immigration debate in Australia has been focused primarily on the people who, you know, people who come by boat, um, who in terms of numbers make up quite a small number of the people who come to Australia every year. At the same time, it seems like it's become more difficult to get citizenship in Australia and people, the, the visa requirements seem to become, have become more onerous. Um, that seems to happen quietly under both governments without a very large public discussion about that. Um, is that, do you feel like that's an accurate impression and what can be, how do you feel about the discussion about immigration in Australia as, as apart from the discussion about refugees? Well, I, I go back to the point I made and I thought I did deal with this. Um, in my remarks, I did not uh, focus um, on issues relating to unlawful arrival in Australia or boat arrivals. Uh, I focused on nation building. I focused on the importance of what we have been able to achieve. I think we are an example to the rest of the world that you can bring people of different races, different religions, different cultures together and you can build a nation and you can have strong support for those policies. Before I became Minister for Immigration, immigration was extraordinarily unpopular. Um, and the reason was that over a period of time, people had recognised that it lacked integrity. It was primarily family reunion based and it was based upon people using relationships to enter Australia when they had no intention of living in a bona fide domestic relationship. Um, I introduced some controls. Um, nobody talks about it. Um, we decided that those who married had to at least have met uh, before they sought to come to Australia. Um, we decided that uh, one gentleman had married nine wives from abroad. He could never seem to make his relationships work. Um, and we put restrictions on how many serial sponsorships you could have. Do you know that the application rate fell by over 50% when we put in place integrity measures? Um, and we put in place a skilled migration program that people thought was beneficial to Australia. Now, it does require careful administration. I can't speak about whether or not um, the, uh, the tests have become more onerous uh, to a point that I would be concerned about it. Um, I haven't observed that. Um, it is certainly the case that we have made it more difficult to obtain citizenship. Um, with uh, some questioning about what people understand of uh, Australian values um, and also a, a longer period of time to see whether or not if people have uh, behaved in ways which evidence character concerns, you might still be able to remove them. I mean, the problem is that if you, if you grant citizenship immediately after people arrive, um, then you can, never, you can never remove them. And the view is that you need time to see whether they're going to settle well or not. So um, 
I, I'm not. I'm not critical um, of the, those policies. I think that it is important to have an immigration program that is well supported by the Australian community, and I think it is absolutely important to ensure integrity. Um, and I see integrity in relation to um, whether you come by air or sea. What did you think about the discussion about prioritising Christian Syrians over Muslim Syrians in uh, the, the Australia's uh, intake yet to be taken? Well, no, but some people argued yes. that you should prioritise yeah. that, and yes. the government made it very clear but what did you um, think that we that? would be yeah. dealing we yeah. would be dealing with that. Well, I understand that there are some people who would want to um, identify those that they see um, as. Uh, uh, their kith and kin uh, accommodated um, and would argue for it. Um, and I know many people from the Middle Eastern churches who would put that point of view. Um, my view is that we should take people on the basis of their need for resettlement. And it's based upon the need that they have. And it may well be that out of Syria at the moment, um, the Ascides, um, maybe the Druze, and some Christians are more likely to be persecuted than others. I mean, that's not our decision, it's others. Um, it may be the outcome that you would get more Christians. That may be the outcome. Um, but it shouldn't be the basis of selection. The selection should be on the basis of who needs help most. Um, our time is up. I am really quick down the back. I'm sorry here. Really quick. Thanks. Um, I just wanted to ask, uh, you mentioned earlier about Syria and how you think we, instead of focusing on the refugees coming to our country, that we should instead be fixing the problem in Syria instead. Um, and I note your earlier comments about how you could never justify a just war, the concept of just war. And I was just intrigued about what you are suggesting we can do about Syria or what your government has attempted to do rather than simply talking about it. Well, I mean, we, we are not... Um, the, the super nation that is able to resolve these issues. Um, the point I was making, and I thought I did make it, is that I would hope those who are very much affected by these issues in Europe and the United States would be engaging those who also have an interest. I mean, when you saw recently the involvement of Chetnians... Um, in terrorist activities in Turkey. Um, I say to myself, Russia, you have a problem involving these very same issues. You ought to have an interest in the same way we do of resolving these matters. Um, and I can't speak for the foreign minister, um, but I did when I went to Washington myself raise with all the American officials I saw the need for them to be actively involved in seeking a resolution. Um, the reality is that most refugee crises in the world are resolved when people are able to go home in peace and security. And when you know the numbers are in millions, um, resettlement of around about 100,000 people, which is all you get from all of the resettlement countries of the world, is not going to deal with the millions.
Thanks for coming and talking to us at the Wheeler Centre. It's been a, a really, really interesting conversation. I personally wish you well in the endeavour to get Australia a seat uh, at the UN Human Rights Council. I'm a believer that, you know, if you're not at the table, you might end up on the menu. So, however imperfect, um, it's it's always good to try. Now, that's copyrighted, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> you can borrow it can if I? it helps, yeah. Uh, I mean, I do. I think that uh, however imperfect, if you're sitting down and... If you're sitting down and talking, that's got to be better than trying to get up steps in between policemen. Uh, so uh, I really appreciate it and thank you. Thank you very much. Well, thank Please you very thank much. You and thank you for joining us for another episode of The Fifth Estate. For other perspectives on human rights in Australia and around the world, visit wheelercentre.com. You'll hear from people like Human Rights Watch Deputy Program Director Tom Porteous. I think Australia's profile is n- not particularly um, high up uh, on the... And Mark Isaacs, a former Asylum Seeker Processing Centre volunteer in Nauru. When you have no sentence, every day feels like the same. There's no progress from day to day. You can't tick off a box and say 364 days to go. And in this type of conditions, it becomes a breeding ground for mental illness. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with a look at democracy in Australia and around the world. What's working and what's going wrong? Is there something significant occurring with the rise of Donald Trump the Brexit vote, and Australia's recent election results. Find out when Sally speaks with former Australian Foreign Minister Gareth Evans in the next Fifth Estate. But for now, take care.